every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Tom Buda, a multi-time tech CMO, most recently of SignalFX. On this episode, Tom dives into his Demand Gen playbook. He shares how customer experience plays a role in growth, why attribution should be key to your Demand Gen strategy, and much more. Enjoy. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of Demand Gen Visionaries and CEO of Caspian Studios. I am joined by my good friend, Tom. How are you? I'm well. It's great to be back on air with you. It is great indeed. Well, I am excited to get all of your deepest, darkest demand gen secrets as we will unfold in this episode. But first, I want to start off, you know, you have been in demand gen of all kinds with someone from your experience in high growth companies and public turnarounds, early and mid-stage venture and PE back companies. You know, how do you view demand gen? Uh, that is a million dollar question. It's funny as people think about hiring CMOs, they actually put you in a few different buckets. One is clearly they're a demand gen expert. Another might be, you know, your branding expert. Another might be your product marketing expert. But demand gen is, is often not just its own independent function, but it's actually the receptacle of the brand that you create and the content that you create. And it's about disseminating that content to the right people at the right time in the most optimized way, such that you create interest and ultimately customers. So let's head into the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What I thought we were in the trust tree with in the nest, are we not? In the trust tree, this is where we feel honest and trusted, and you can share your deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. Do you have a key measure for demand gen? I do, and that's often one of the things that's a challenge because different people think about what's important as it relates to demand gen differently. From where I stand, the most important measure is pipeline creation because that creates the possibility of opportunity. At Signal Effects, we measured pipeline over the course of five quarters, and we monitored the pipeline that was generated independently by marketing and independently by sales on a weekly basis. But it was definitely part of a key KPI that we had for the year. And sometimes we would modify that based on where we were in terms of achieving that. I think that's the most important. Following that, it's how well have you been able to activate that pipeline and realize the potential in that pipeline. And so the other key measure that I always focus on is the ability of marketing independently and sales independently to source closed deals, which basically means how much revenue 
new revenue did marketing source versus sales. And those would be the two that I would focus on. And I'll talk about something else that is, I'm not sure it's a secret, but I do think later on, however you want to get into it, is a mistake that a lot of people in demand gen make because there's a third way, of course, to, to generate revenue. Yeah, yeah, let's get into that. And then we'll, we'll circle back to uh, pipeline and how you do that. So yeah, what's the third thing? <laughs> so the third thing is, it's, it's actually quite fundamental. And that is everybody's looking for new logos, right? Everybody's looking for new customers. Everybody's looking for the lead flow that's going to create the new levels of interest and the new customers that you can bring in. What a lot of people forget about is how important it is to actually market to your current customers. There's a saying that says the next best customer is, is one you already have and your ability to grow that relationship. And so I have been in companies where the existing customer base was thought of as the, quote, installed base that had maintenance contracts. Sales would try and, you know, sell in year over year, but it wasn't necessarily about nurturing those relationships. I think about the existing customer base as a franchise. I mean, they're part of the core franchise of the business. And my approach is you need to treat your customers as your first level of communication in anything that you do. In other words, your customers shouldn't read about something that you've just done, an alliance or a fundraise or an expansion or whatever the news might be. They shouldn't read about it at the same time the world reads about it. They should read about it ideally before. And I think it's really important to have them feel like they're being truly treated as you know family, as it were, and treated a little bit specially. You know, at Signal Effects, we had massive growth in terms of our net retention rate of our business year over year. It was actually at the highest levels that I had seen for SaaS businesses. And I think that was not only the nature of the platform itself and our ability to add additional capabilities to it and grow those relationships, but I think it was based upon how important we understood those existing customers to be and how much we focused in on them. Yeah, I remember distinctly you talking about your retention rates being off the charts. I'm curious, how did you facilitate that? And how did you organize your team to take care of those folks? Like, were you saying, you know, did you have folks on your team that were responsible for making sure that you have like, you know, customer success marketing or something like that? I'm, I'm curious how you arranged it. Yeah. Well, first, you know, as it relates to sort of the marketing ops slash growth marketing side of things, which is classically where you'll develop campaigns, you'll have your database, you'll segment your database, and you'll treat people, you know, slightly differently within the database so that you can provide customized communication. So in that area, we would segment the customers, you know, out of the database so that they were in fact treated, you know, independent of what we might do elsewhere. So on that side of things, yes, we very much were always looking at the database saying, okay, is this the message we want to deliver to the customers? Do we want to do something slightly differently for them versus, say, our highest value prospects that might look like those customers? On the other side of it, the customer success side, we did have a dedicated person who, who was responsible, I should say, for managing the relationships with our customers such that we were enrolling them in getting comfortable with actually talking about their experience. And, and we knew how valuable that was in a world where it's not necessarily what you say that matters, it's actually what they say. You know, we knew how important it was for customers to, to talk about the value that they were seeing from the companies that I've worked for and, and really how 
challenging it is sometimes for them to get agreement to actually go on the record in talking about that. So we had somebody who was, you know, very much dedicated to nurturing those relationships. I was very involved personally in doing that and enrolling people in in their willingness to share the story and then working very closely with them on the kind of story that we were both comfortable with them sharing and the different ways that we were going to bring that story to life. Yeah, it seems like you really did have a close hand on a lot of that customer marketing and you know, even working directly with them. I'm curious, especially in a software product like SignalFX, were you working with people on their marketing teams? Were you working on the actual users or the decision makers of those accounts? How were you doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. So the answer is both, but you have to get the buy-in from the individual who's actually on the front lines working with you on the front lines doing that work. If they're passionate about the relationship, about the value that they're seeing for their business, then it makes it easier to work through any of the sort of corporate offices that you typically would need to work through. So classically, that would be PR. There were certain things that the company would want to keep off limits to make sure that the individual who's speaking on their behalf, there were some guardrails with what they could say and not say. Oftentimes where that becomes really challenging is if they're doing interviews with the press, because typically those interviews are, they're kind of real time. And even though good writers would review what it is they were going to talk about or write about prior to actually writing about it, many times, you know, you need to be sure that they actually don't bring things up that they shouldn't. It's easier if you're filming someone or they're on stage because you typically would have worked really closely with them to script that and to stage that and would have met with approvals already. I guess the last thing I might say is the natural instinct for corporate comms departments is to actually say no because they see it as a risk. But if you have a track record of doing things in a very positive way, in a very elegant way, and there has been benefit to the company of actually having their people um, out there, then you know, then you're more likely to get to get buy-in. In other words, they'll look at you differently. You know, those folks that normally might want to resist saying yes, they'll look at you more differently because they know you're a pro. Going back to the marketing pipeline and sales pipeline, I'm curious, how did you keep those two things separate when so often they're they're very linked? Well, yeah, another good question. So at Signal Effects, the marketing ops team and the sales ops teams were just like they were yin and yang. So we were all operating off of the same set of criteria and the same dashboards. Obviously, in some cases, sales had more responsibility for certain dashboards than marketing did and, and vice versa. But when we reported our progress week over week, in our extremely intense meetings, starting out the week at 8 a.m. each week, it was one dashboard that we looked at. And so the reason, the way we were able to be very discreet about where the impact was derived from was through the installation of an attribution tool that was able to point to, by account, every single touch that was made by both marketing and sales. And so you can see where that first touch would occur, right? If it was a download of a paper, if there was the attendance at an event, if there was the attendance at a webinar, if it was the attendance at a talk or a roundtable and other things, we would attribute those to marketing-led activities. If it was that first meeting which showed up as you know an AE or a BDR cold calling a company and then 
get an AE getting a meeting and that resulted in an opportunity, then it was clearly sales. And then there might be 16 marketing touch points during the process of closing that deal. And so in that case, that we would look at that as marketing enabled as opposed to marketing sourced. Look, if you're doing your demand gen job well, if you're marketing to your customers well, if you're truly canvassing the marketplace in an appropriate ways, then frankly, marketing's influence pipeline should be really, really high. It'll never be 100%, but it should be close to 85, 90%. Were there any times where you had the conversation about deals that were closed one where you kind of had that moment where it's like, hey, you know, that was sourced by sales and you're like, yeah, but they also went to like six webinars and read five white papers, sort of a thing, that kind of moment? Or was it just like, who cares? It's closed one. Yeah, I'd be lying to you if I'd said that that never happened. And frankly, that's historically where there's a little bit of, yeah, marketing says they did this. And, but yeah, we know that sales actually was the real reason why this happened. But if you actually just look at the data, then the data will be able to tell you that, yes, there were there was a first touch here or a second touch here and a third touch here. And then it was picked up by sales. And then there were two meetings. And then there was four other touches. by Martin. So the point is like the data is going to point out what all those interactions were as to who gets quote credit. I mean, sure, we'd love to, to talk about what contribution we were making to the business, but we didn't want to overstate that. And we wouldn't overstate that because we're doing our job, which is increasing the odds of success. And sales is doing its job which is enabling that success to become reality. Yeah, well said. No, I think, you know, it's just, I didn't want to get into that. He said, she said, or it's mine or it's yours, or we're the reason versus you're the reason. It was at the end of the day, you know, we were all shareholders in the business. We all are, we frankly, were all incented against the same objectives. And our job was to help us get there however we possibly could. And sales's job was to help do the same. And, you know, if they source deals on their own, then great. Now those are new people that we just pulled into the database. So cool. What are the most fundamental requirements to building demand gen? Good question again. Frankly, the first starts with perspective. And I think we just touched on this a little bit. And that is demand gen is a function within a function within an entire go-to-market function. So it's part of a team, right? And it does not live on its own. It is reliant upon really good content. It's reliant upon the ability to act appropriately and quickly on opportunities that it creates. And so if you have that perspective, then I think you'll be able to design your own programs that will work because it's sort of one of these, we're in this together, you know, mindsets. You have a role to do clearly, but having that perspective helps. Second thing is I think having the right marketing stack with the right levels of intelligence about, again, knowing where specifically you are having an impact is really, really important. So that attribution tool was great. I mean, we talk about that at the board level because, you know, everybody wants to know what's the derivation of a deal? You know, what does a deal look like? How did it happen? You know, what happens next? And where, you know, being able to measure and then ultimately potentially predict the impact that various investments that you would make in various techniques to, to help create interest and enroll people, you need to be able to measure that impact. And so, you know, having software that enables you to track everything is really, really important. And frankly, you know, we were really good at that. So the, the other thing I would say is fundamental, and that is the understanding that your home 
is the place that most people will go to and you need that being your website and you need to be able to ensure that when they get there that they have the best possible experience but you also need to be sure that they actually can find you and so one of the biggest areas that we needed to correct quickly when we entered into signal effects was we needed to improve our search engine optimization. If you did a search on cloud monitoring, like we weren't showing up early enough in the search. And so we we brought somebody in who was really fantastic about understanding how to best work with Google and Google search and keywords and ultimately AdWords and things. He had run a business for Oracle that was an online business that was a self-serve business. So, And he basically had revenue targets because nothing else was sourcing that revenue besides people showing up on the website. So, you know, he was really, really good at that. So I would say that that's another fundamental requirement, which is to have a facility that people can find and that you can point to with confidence that when they get there, they'll have a really good experience. I want to know more about this attribution tool because uh, you've mentioned it a few times and clearly it was a winner. I actually remember the name of the tool by the nickname I gave it, but I won't go there right now. <laughs> the name of the tool that we used was called Lean Data. L- I think it's L-E-A-N. Data. Yeah. So without going into too much of the technical description of it, what they basically are able to do is to associate the database of accounts right? They were able to scrub the Salesforce database. So they have records of all the accounts. And then every time there's a touch where that account shows up, whether they they were scanned at an event or, you know, they downloaded a paper or they attended a demo or they had a meeting or they were called on by a BDR, those touches would show up in their system and they would associate the touch again with that account. So it made it pretty easy for us and quickly actually to see the value of it. Yeah, shout out Karen Steele, friend of ours in, in the broader network. We got to bring her on Demand Visionaries. She'd be great. Their CMO. Yeah, I mean, for sure. So it'd be interesting. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how who, who she markets to and how they're positioning themselves, but hugely valuable. Well, and we'll get into marketing. Actually, maybe we just do that now. So clearly marketing ops has been something critical for you. How do you differentiate growth marketing and marketing ops? What's the role of marketing ops that you see? So this is a little bit tricky. Marketing ops to me is bigger than just like the technical operations of demand gen. It includes that, but it includes the the ability to have the entire marketing function operate in a cohesive way, but it's typically run by people who have an orientation towards customer-based prospect database. They have an orientation towards data and technology. And that's the kind of person that I hired. So Michael Kwan, who I think was just actually promoted to president of demand gen and growth marketing at Redis Labs, where he went after he left us, was a great example of a, of a marketing ops guy who had a growth marketing orientation. So he, he understood what the new stack should look like. And by the way, we tested a bunch of stuff. So we were not opposed to just trialing things. He worked really closely with sales ops and sales leadership to manage our lead scoring because that becomes really important because if you don't score leads properly, then you can basically have misalignment as to what the quality of a lead actually is. And that's where you get into this turf war stuff. You know, marketing's giving me crap leads, right? Kind of thing. Just because somebody showed up at your booth doesn't make them a qualified lead kind of thing. So lead scoring becomes really important. And then understanding as you build out the funnel, things don't stop once you get people into the funnel. 
that actually the more important work actually starts to occur as you help enable them to move through the funnel. And again, that's where that attribution tool become really important because we knew where people were classically inside the funnel and where the marketing ops and sales ops teams needed to be completely in sync. You can start to see the impact of what you're doing or what you actually need to do. So that's how I think about marketing ops with a growth marketing orientation. The other thing that you work really closely with sales on and particularly sales leadership, but it's operationalized by sales ops is it's classifying your database of prospects. So what is a platinum account? What are the characteristics of a platinum account? What are the characteristics of a gold account? What are the characteristics of a silver account? What are the qualifying criteria that lead to your best possible prospects? Recognizing that in some cases, it's not always an exact fit. It might surprise you that commercial account that starts as a classic Silicon Valley funded startup has massive scale and growth. And so they just leapfrog the system to become a really important account that you might not have historically classified them as like a platinum. So those are all things that marketing ops would own, again, with a growth marketing orientation. I actually see those two things that going hand in hand. My first instincts are that growth marketing in particular should own campaigns. And what was interesting is that a lot of organizations have product marketing owning the campaigns because product marketing would, would know, it knows what the product roadmap looks like. It's usually keyed to the delivery of certain new capabilities or enhanced capabilities, maybe timed to some critical events or things happening in the marketplace. And I think they would create a broad brush of, you know, here are the four campaigns we were looking to sort of drive for the year. And some are, you know, you initiate in quarter one and they're ongoing through the remainder of the year. And another one might be initiated in quarter two, for example. But the growth marketing folks have to figure out how to keep things fresh and when to know when there's information overload, when you've just been hitting the, you know, your database too often with too much and you, you start to create people who turn you off. Let's get into campaigns. Let's go to the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. The playbook is where we open up the playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. So was there one to three uncuttable budget items that you would have when you would build your campaigns or just in general? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, search, right. We just, we had to, we had to spend the money to ensure that we were showing up first on the first page. And when we understood what the key triggers were, whether they were competitive displacement or replacement opportunities or the like, we had to spend the money smartly, but we had to spend the money to show up when somebody might be searching for competitor A and we knew that there was a long history of replacing you know those accounts over time those their installation so we would need to we would want to spend against that searches for say their business so so that that's that's one on i mean really uncuttable again as long as you have the confidence that it's being really tightly managed and you're not you're you're not showing up on every single browser all of the time, I mean, you'd have to make some trade-off decisions. Is it worth spending the money on a Safari browser versus, you know, a, a Google browser versus, you know, something else? So 
What else was uncuttable? I would say uncuttable is just investment in customer marketing. Again, the power of, you know, it's not what you say, it's what they say. The validation that you get from customers is just immeasurable. So I would never, ever want to cut those budgets at all. And then the third is, is really, um, it's content creation. So we did most of our own content creation. We never really outsourced it. If we did, we wound up taking it over anyway. My belief is it always has to start from within. You might have somebody who'd be a really good editor. That's different. But in terms of turning something over, we did a couple of case studies with external you know, consultants and writers and such. But for the most part, we wrote everything and packaged everything. We had our own, own house team that did all of that. That, you know, that's just not cuttable. That's the content you, know, you need to go and amplify. That's three. <laughs> so who was responsible for building campaigns? Well, as I said, I think the product marketing team was responsible for the broad, the broad campaigns that we wanted to run. For example, when we launched our microservices APM product, that work was led the core the core content of it and the need to create campaigns around it was led by the product marketing team however the digital marketing folks that were all part of the kind of marketing ops growth marketing sort of team their responsibility was to work with product marketing to figure out okay how are we gonna how are we gonna take this market to the customer base how are we going to take this content to the prospect base how are we going to advertise it how are we going what's it going to look like on social and so I had the growth marketing team own the sort of elements of the creation of the elements of the campaign, which then worked with product marketing to validate and test. But often you needed to be punchier, you know, through the digital marketing means than you would need to be when you're writing a white paper. Right. So, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. So it worked well. And we, look, we were a small enough team, frankly, that we, I mean, everybody worked really well together. But I was relying on, you know, I, and that's where I was, I'd get very involved, which was like, this is not, this is just not good enough right now. It's not sharp enough. It's not tight enough. We're not amplifying it in unique ways. Let's test different formats. Let's test different venues. Um, let's test different leads. Are we going to highlight it in various places, different ways? So that ownership ultimately fell with the growth team, marketing ops team, demand gen team. But, you know, it was, I mean, very much a team effort. What's one mistake that you often see when uh, people are doing demand gen? Well, one I talked about, and that is like, you go after the fresh meat, right? You go after the new logos exclusively, and you forget that you can actually have great influence over building relationships uh, with your existing customers. So we talked about that. But yeah, that's a big mistake. Again, I mean, when I was at this one company that frankly had was massively successful for a long time and then lost their way. It was just how they thought about the customer base. They just kept talking about them as the install base. And, I'm, and I said, well, you mean our customers? I said, yeah, the install base. I said, those customers are our franchise. I mean, they give reason for us to exist. We need to put our arms around these people, particularly because we're now talking about elevating our space from basically one capability to a platform. You know, those are the first places we need to turn. So there was a lot that went into actually putting our arms around them from a measuring and listening to what they had to say about how well we treated them or not to creating forms for which they can talk among themselves to highlighting the folks that were doing it really well to ultimately shining a light on the value that they saw that they can create at their company that they needed help in convincing their executives that was possible. And so that helped turn that whole company around as part of a turnaround story. 
Again, that's a big mistake that I think people make. And the other is to think about the impact of demand gen as being leads or qualified leads. You know, a qualified lead is only as good as if it turns into an opportunity. An opportunity is reflected in pipeline. And so if you've actually created and sized an opportunity, and if you actually are doing that correctly, then your true measure should be pipeline. And then you need to then very carefully understand how well that pipeline's been activated and specifically, you know, how you've helped people move through the funnel from having sized an opportunity to getting into a trial, to getting into a proof concept, to, you know, to getting into, you know, deal flow. So those are the two. Let's go to the desktop. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly. As we've got punches and this is where we talk about healthy tension. Um, and it's maybe a time in your career where you had a little dust-up with someone on the board, someone on your sales team, maybe a competitor or anyone else. Do you have any uh, famous dust-ups, Tom? No. <laughs> I knew it. Yeah. Nary a one. Too nice of a guy. I'm on all the forecast calls, right? The first and most often used excuse that sales will have when their pipeline isn't big enough or their commit isn't big enough is I'm not getting enough help from marketing and or my leads, the, the, the leads that they're giving me are crap, which is the same thing. So I know that's an excuse. If it's true, then, then I've got to fix something because that should never really be true, which is why we were so careful about making sure that we were measuring the impact that we were having. We were measuring everything. And so, you know, it got to the point where it was understood by sales leadership who had more broad responsibilities on driving revenue. It was understood at some point that those were excuses, right? So in the dust-ups, you know, what happened when you have these one-on-one conversations, they like, we quit throwing us under the bus. This is bullshit. Like, here's the data, right? Here's the information. Here's the stuff. Here's what we did. Why aren't you calling on these people? You know, in some cases, you just have people that maybe were not the best fit for an earlier stage company where they needed to do a little bit more groundwork and grunt work. So I would call those sort of mild, mild dust-ups, but you have, you'd have to have the conversation because... You know, it's we live in a time where uh, if you control the narrative, then it becomes the truth, even if it isn't the truth that you're conveying. So we just that's why it was really, really important for us to have data to back up what we were doing. Over your time at Signal FX, you created a great website. You worked for a company that was all about real-time cloud monitoring and websites were core to your business. But I'm curious, like, what do you see as the importance of your website with regards to demand gen? Well, your website has to be able to convey information crisply and quickly. You have to be able to entice people enough to want to have them stay on it. And the navigation of it has to be really, really easy. Like if you have a solutions page, it should be about your solutions. If you have a customer page, it should be about your customers. It should just be really, really easy. One of the things we discovered is we had like a lot of pages that were hard to discover. And frankly, we're at a date that we're still part of the website. So I think you're better off having less than more and making sure it's as crisp as possible. Second is, again, you want people to be able to find it. So that's about search. You want to be able to optimize the content on the website for search. And that's where we worked with our search kind of guru 
to ensure that the content that we were creating was optimized. One of the biggest sources that we found of search was coming through product documentation. And the product documentation pages were not written to optimize for search. One of our competitors, they did a fantastic job of optimizing their product documentation, which was on their website, and they got a lot of hits as a result of that. We had reasonably good content, maybe not quite as good, but it was not optimized for search. And so we went and did that as a project. And that, that, was, that was super helpful. And then I think the other thing is like, you want to give people an opportunity to get what they want without asking too much, but sometimes you have to ask. So, oh yeah, here's another, here's another, maybe a little bit of a technique that we learned. And that is part of the reason why we were, our, our lead flow is like kind of off the charts was we were capturing people's names and all the rest, but we were allowing them to use any email address that they wanted. And it turns out that actually a lot of people like put in bogus emails. So we knew we were going to limit top of funnel by mandating or you know requiring them to have a business email. And when we did, yes, the numbers went down, but the number of higher quality leads. So that helped everybody. Final segment here. Let's get into our quick hits. These questions are quick. The answers are quick. Just like qualified.com, if someone's on your website right now, you want to talk to them quickly. Go to qualified.com to learn how you can get your hot prospects on your website right now and talk to them in real time. Close more deals, qualified.com. Quick hits. Are you ready, Tom? I'm ready. What is the one thing that you have done in shelter in place that is a new habit? I go for a walk every day. I'm fortunate to be sheltering here for now more than three months at a home we have in Ireland. And we are very much in the country. We're surrounded by farmland and ocean, literally right out of our door. There's some really great walks and hikes. And every morning, wake up, I go and do that. There is one other thing that I'm doing that I've never, that I never did before. And that is we, on my way to work every day, when I was in Palo Alto, I would, I would go to the train station and I would get my, uh, you know, my cappuccino made at Cafe Venetia because I always did an amazing job. So I didn't need to have one at home here. You know, the nearest town walkable is, you know, it's five mile walk. So we bought our own little, you know, espresso machine. And um, I've been <laughs> working diligently to be able to try to match the quality that I would get at Cafe Venetia. And I make them every morning. You're going to be our, uh, our farm correspondent here shortly. Any tips on the farm that you got for us? Any sheep tips? No, but I will tell you, you know, having lived a long time in Manhattan and, you know, in Silicon Valley where there's obviously a lot of cars and there's a lot going on. My, my wife would, you know, she'd open the front door and she would say, listen, and I'd listen. And she'd say, can you hear that? And I'd say, yeah, but there's nothing there. She said, that's exactly the point. It's so quiet. It's so quiet. You can hear the waves lapping on the, sh- on the cliffs or you might be able to hear the sheep, the lamb, the new lambs baying, or the occasional randy bull amidst the cows, or the birds. But that's like, honestly, that's it. And it's, boy, oh boy, it gives you really great perspective. Well, it it seals it. We are going to do our next Demand Gen Visionaries uh, live from Ireland. I think we figured it out here today. (laughs) 
You're most welcome. With a name like Ian, I mean, come on. I know. Yeah, I walked right in the door. <laughs> Tom, this has been awesome. Thanks as always. Great catching up with you. And and these are some just awesome insights. Uh, appreciate your time. No, I, I I love doing these things, and I especially love doing them with you. And I'm really. I'm, you know, just a shout out to you guys. I'm, I'm really happy to see you guys continuing your success and um, building a great business. You, you provide a great service and you have a great business and you're a pleasure to work with. So uh, I'm happy to be with you anytime. Thanks. Appreciate it. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.